You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This episode of Uncorking a Story is brought to you by Winning Streak, a heartwarming novel about overcoming loss and finding love. You can purchase Winning Streak in paperback or ebook format wherever books are sold online. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to share with you my conversation with Dr. Colleen Georges, a counseling psychologist and author of Rescript the Story You're Telling Yourself, The Eight Practices to Quiet Your Inner Antagonist, Amplify Your Inner Advocate, and author of Limitless Life. When I was preparing for this interview, I, I learned just how small of a world this really is. So Colleen and I both had some work published in in the same book. Uh, the book was called The Ten Habits of Truly Optimistic People, and it was spearheaded by a former guest on this show, uh, a guy by the name of David Mezepel. So I thought that was interesting that uh, we, we had no idea who each other were. It was the first time I, I met her was the other day when I recorded this interview, and then I realized that, hey, we had we shared something in common. But we also shared uh, something else in common, and that is our love for what I would call hair metal. Uh, and apologies in advance because we do go down a couple of hair metal as well as other pop culture uh, kind of rabbit holes during the course of this uh, conversation, which I will play for you momentarily. Uh, before I do, though, I just want to talk uh, a little bit about me because uh, I am one of my favorite topics. No, I'm just kidding. I'm really not that egocentric. I'm only like half that egocentric. Uh, some of you know that I've been doing stand-up comedy a few times a month at various places in Connecticut. I'm happy to report that I've got a date in New York City, the Big Apple, coming up on Thursday, July 18th at Dangerfields in New York. Yes, that Dangerfield, the, the I, I get no respect Dangerfield. That's his his place. His Well, he's not alive anymore, so I guess it was his place. I mean, it still has his name on it, so I guess I can get away with present tense. I don't know. Uh, anyway, to warm up for that act, I do also have a, a date at Mohegan Sun on a Thursday, July 11th. That just came uh, through recently. Uh, both of those shows, uh, it would be great if, if any of you fans out there could make it. Um, so hit me up on email uh, if, if you want some more detail. Email is michael.carlin, that's C-A-R-L-O-N, at uncorkingastory.com. Let me just talk about stand-up for a minute. It is nerve-wracking to get up in front of a group of people, especially those who have paid money to be entertained, because they have... Um, they have like higher expectations for laughter than people who are just showing up at like an open mic night at a at a comedy club. Anyway, though, uh, I, I enjoy it, even though it is nerve wracking, because from a writer's perspective, it's extremely fulfilling to get instant feedback on something you've written. So when it comes to writing books, you know, I just submitted one hundred and four thousand words to an editor uh, for my latest novel called Slippery People. Um, that I'm not going to hear feedback on that for a while. Uh, but with regards to, um, you know, writing jokes and performing jokes, you get feedback on it immediately. And, and then, you know, what you need to keep, what you need to ditch or what you need to rework to make it even funnier. 
And other comics are are kind of brutal with their feedback, but some sometimes uh, you need to hear um, the brutal feedback. But also, I've learned uh, that there are some really great people out there who want to see you succeed and who are you know more than willing to help and, and give you advice. I want to give a big shout out to a big Sam Hunter for uh, for for guiding me during uh, during my joke writing process. Um, anyway, so that uh, that's actually kind of cool. It's actually interesting because. Um, it, it's not too dissimilar from what I do for my day job. So it, my day job is to run focus groups for, um, for big companies. I, I have a lot of uh, wonderful clients who hire me for my expertise in getting people together and discussing, you know, advertising or a new product concept, et cetera. And if you think about it, like the people who I, I bring in to, uh, participate in, in the focus groups that I run are kind of like an audience. And, it, but instead of going through material or jokes, uh, which I, I will admit to doing sometimes, landing a few jokes in each of my groups. Um, but instead of material, I'm, I'm sharing them, you know, my clients, uh, whatever my client needs to learn about. So that could be an ad, it could be a concept, it could be something um, completely different. But uh, uh, just like me learning in real time what an audience likes or is getting an emotional reaction to or from, um you know, the stuff I do in focus groups gets an immediate reaction. My clients can use that information to to make whatever changes they need to make. So there you have it. I've successfully successfully crossed uh, the streams uh, and compared my real career with uh, my aspirational career. So yay, yay, Mike. Um, anyway, so I think we've, we've heard enough about me, right? Um, I've, I've rambled on a bit here. Um, now it's time to get to uh, what you really want to hear anyway. Uh, and that is my interview with uh, Dr. Car- Colleen Georges. And after it's done, I really hope you'll agree with us that John Bon Jovi is a national treasure. Enjoy our talk. Well, why don't we just start there? Like, where where is Dr. Colleen Georges from? And let me know if I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. You got it. It is the. Uh, it is not French. It is not George. Um, it is a Greek last name. Um, changed from Serendopoulos when my grandfather came here as I think a fourteen-year-old. So, okay. um, but I am from Sarahville, New Jersey, where Bon Jovi is from. <laughs> now you're, <laughs> Which, now you're way, talking my language. Yeah. <laughs> That was like the biggest deal when, um, you know, in 1984, 85, there, there was a sign coming into Cerebral that, you know, said boyhood home of John Bon Jovi. We, we embraced that very much. Um, So I'm from Cerebral. I currently live in Piscataway, New Jersey, which is all of 20 minutes from where I grew up. (laughs) Hey, I say rightfully show they, 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 they should promote the fact that John Bon Jovi is there because let me tell you something, that man is a national treasure. What? Um, yeah, you know, I mean, don't and don't let this haircut fool you. Back in the day, um, <laughs> I, I hate the term hair metal, but it's so descriptive. Like you know exactly yeah. what I say when I say hair metal. <laughs> but I mean, that's still to me some of the greatest music um, ever. And that's just I'm showing my cards here. But M- Mike, I've, now I've got to ask you a question. Did yeah. you watch Headbangers Ball? Oh my God, with Adam Curry? Or what? I mean, Adam Curry and, and Ricky Rackman. <laughs> Not only that, I used to hit the hard 30, the hard 60, whatever, whatever was on. You don't want to hear a funny story. Back in 1998, I was working in interactive advertising. Um, it was one of my first jobs out of school. And, you know, I'm, I'm going around all these companies. I'm, I'm all of 20-something years old. And who is sitting in a room um, with his father but a short-haired Adam Curry? 
What? I know. And after after he left MTV, he started like a web development business. Um, oh, and I, I believe he was in business with his dad and they got acquired by like, uh, I can't remember who it was, like organic or something like that. And yeah, he was in a meeting. Um, that's crazy. And that story is rivaled only by the time I was working for Unilever and I was asked to open a conference room door and who's standing on the other side, but Andrew Shue from Melrose Place, because we did, and I, and it's so, so funny. So they, the, the people who were running this meeting knew that, you know, I'm a pop culture, like yeah. savant and they're like, Mike, uh, open the door. There's somebody there who wants to talk to you. And he was, we, it was a big, you know, company meeting. And uh, so I opened the door and I say, uh, I see you standing in front of me. And the only word that comes out of my mouth is Billy. <laughs> and it's just like, and then it was all kind of, I don't know, it was uphill or downhill from there, but he came in and he was promoting something, a business he was, he put together at the time called Club Mom. So he got out of oh, the cool. acting world and got into like a nonprofit thing, but um that's yeah, so cool. I, I, it's just funny how you come across these people from your, you know, your childhood. You wind up in the business world and you you see them. It's kind of weird. That's but yeah, I was a big, big hard thirty, hard sixty, headbangers ball fan. Me too, uh, totally. It was it was all good stuff. Actually, Iron Maiden's coming around this summer, and I'm uh, I had tickets a couple of years ago to see them, yeah. and um, now they're doing the, the, the Legacy of the Beast tour. It could be one of their last tours, so I'm uh, hoping yeah. to get some tickets in, in July when they come into into New York. So. Yeah, it's been it's been a long time since I've seen a hair metal band concert. But I remember back in the day, whenever they would come, they we had this local club called Club Benet. It's yeah. shut down years ago, which is like heartbreaking. But anytime, and a lot of like pretty big bands would come there, and you would have this very intimate experience because it wasn't a big place. So I remember um, Danger Danger. Oh, Actually, sure. I don't know if you remember. Yeah, Naughty Ted Naughty. Foley, yeah. Right, Naughty Naughty. Yeah. So they played. My friends and I were there. And, um, and I, you know, my claim to fame is that I got to, I got to hug Ted Poley. That was, that was a very good day. <laughs> I, you know, and I hope you've showered since then, but I did, but, but it was a couple of days later. <laughs> there's a, uh, hang on to that experience. <laughs> oh, sure. There's a, um, a, 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 a Mohegan sun casino up here in Connecticut. Yeah. I mean, it's up here. It's like two and a half hours away from me, but they get these nostalgia acts that come through and it's a free show. So they, 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 they book the band, um, free show and yeah, they just want, you know, people to come into the casino. But, um, last year I got to see, who did I see? I saw, um, Lynch mob, George Lynch from Dawkin. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, faster pussycat came through <gasps> and wow. I mean, you know, hearing house of pain live was, uh, was surreal. I didn't never saw them back in the day, but it was, right. uh, I think like two of the original band members are left and they, they don't look so good, but, um, yeah. you know, it's fun. It's, it's just fun. It kind of brings you back to a time in your life where you were a little bit more carefree and, yep. you know, things were simpler, but so you, so that's, so you're from New Jersey yeah. and, um, what, like when you were a kid, like, what did you want to be when you, when you were growing up? What was the, what was the plan? Uh, well, a lot of different things. Um, I think the first thing I ever wanted to be was Indiana Jones. Okay. Um, and that, that lasted for a while. I would pretend to be an archaeologist with my friends and climb over the fences and the condo complex and dig in the dirt and pretend we were finding, you know, archaeological finds. Um, and then I, at some point, I wanted to be, I have a time capsule from seventh grade that uh, says that I wanted to be a, a singer in a band. 
Uh, Doro Pesh was my idol from Warlock, mm-hmm. and I wanted to be Doro Pesh, and I wanted to be touring the country with my bands. And then I got into Metal Edge magazine and wanted to be Jerry, who was the interviewer and the writer for Metal Edge magazine. And that was where writing became a thing for me. And at that point, that was high school. So um, I started writing poetry, and that was how, you know how I dealt with all my teenage angst was through poetry for many years, took some creative writing classes in high school and, um, and kind of went vacillated then at that point between psychology and English as a major in the future. But that was, that was the, the loves writing was, was in there from a pretty young age. Well, I mean, the writing comes, comes into play. I mean, once you start studying psychology at the undergraduate level even you know you right there's so much writing involved and that that's i wanted when i was um when i was in high school we had an elective uh, it was a psychology course and yeah. it was taught by this guy named michael roper who was a former uh he was like a former like monk or something he was in like a religious order <laughs> and um he was a fascinating guy like crazy i mean con- con- completely nuts but he was he was a trained counselor and um, I loved the course, and I got I was so fascinated by psychology, so I decided to make that as my major when I went to school. And um, but so much writing, so much writing, and then of course once you're on the sure. PhD track, and you know you know your dissertation is is everything. Yeah, but, um, yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. So so you 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 certainly you know followed up on the psychology part of things. Yeah. Um, did you just did you wind up doing anything with regards to music or performing or anything? Uh, like that? No. No, no, it never, it, it, yeah, it never went anywhere. But ironically, um, my son, he's 10 and he, he plays piano and that was all of his own, um, that was all of his own choice. That was, he, there's piano at my parents' house. He started messing around with it when he was like three or four years old. He started asking for piano lessons and he's like a ridiculously gifted piano player. Mm-hmm. And so, so he, he took it on for me. I have, I have a feeling he might go in that direction, but no, I did not. (laughs) It it passed through you and he inherited it. So that's, uh, that's good. But he's probably not playing metal on the piano. I have to imagine, you know? No. Well, uh, well, 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 believe it or not, that might be coming. We got a lesson today and the, the, uh, piano teacher asked, find three or four songs that you want to learn on, um, on the piano so we can find the music for it. So, you know, I, I took control of, of, of that activity. <laughs> so, uh, we've got on tap that we are going to learn uh, November Rain. Okay, so that's a good piano that song. Will be coming. That will be coming. We got some Billy Joel. We're, gonna, you know, we're working on Piano Man. And we've got Tears for Fears. Um, what is it? Mad, uh, Mad World. Okay. So, well, now, I mean, may I make a suggestion? I mean, there's, yeah, a, there's a fantastic Molly Crew song. That has a oh lot of uh, has a lot of uh, piano in it. Um, yes, and that would be something called "Home Sweet Home." Yes, I was just about to say I could see "Theater of Pain" in my head, yes. and I'm like, "What was the name of the song?" I, which is awful because they were my favorite band, and I did see them in concert. <laughs> now, I mean, you know, listeners may may uh, not appreciate these trips down the rabbit hole, but. Yeah. Um, did you see on Netflix? Um, I did, of course. The movie course. The Dirt. Did you watch it? Of course I did. Yeah. <laughs> I tried so hard to get my wife into that, and she just would not. Um, she would not even consider. No. Watching it with me, but um, I watched it, and I thought if if one tenth of that is true, if one tenth of that is true, 
Those guys were madmen. You know what I mean? <laughs> Crazy. My husband and I watched it together, and he was ne- never into Motley Crue, but he was—he's the one who said, "We, you know, you got to watch this." So we watched it together, and I think my reaction was that at sixteen, I was definitely not aware of the misogyny <laughs> in the music, and as a as a feminist today right. it was a little painful to sort of recognize that but i make peace with it i i, I will always love them and that's fine <laughs> you know i have the same issue with um uh with bill cosby i um yeah. i am a uh aspiring stand-up I, I do stand-up all over connecticut i've got a date coming up in new york and um, when i was a kid bill cosby to me was like he was so funny i could recite you know word for word the special he did on HBO, I think it was called Bill Cosby yeah. himself. And now you look back uh, at, at kind of the creepy, the creepiness of the behavior. And but even like looking back on music in the '80s, you know, so much of that stuff was so over the top, and you know, you use the term misogynistic, but it was just yeah. like so, like transparently, like you know, marketed too. You know, mm-hmm. like living up to a specific image, and you always kind of wonder, like. I'm like, you know, were they Satanists? I don't know. I think they were just playing into a trend. You know, they were playing into something to get to get some controversy going. But yeah, that is very true. So you did. Uh, so you you did study psychology. You got a PhD in counseling psychology, if if memory serves. Yeah. Um, so what what was next? So you leave you leave school, and what did you what did you do? What were your what was your intention there? Yeah. Well, you know, initially. Um, Initially coming out, well, when I went into the doctoral program, I wanted to work with teens and families. Um, I had a job in college working with teenagers in foster care, and it was, it will always be one of the best jobs and really experiences of my life. I did that for about two and a half years in college. And um, so when I went into my doctoral program, that was the intention. I wanted to work with teens and families. And ironically, when I went to my advisor and I said, you know, around this area, you know, or in New Brunswick, is there, are there any people you know of who, or organizations you know of that are, you know, do family therapy or working with teenagers? Cause I wanted to get some field work experience. And, and she said, well, I'll have to look into that. She said, but I do know that my, my friend Crystal over at career services um, on campus is looking for an intern. And I was like, career services, like, what's that? (laughs) I don't want to do that. (laughs) I had gone there like one time when I was a senior, like took a flyer and like ran out the door, but I, I was like, ah, all right. So I went over, I talk about the rest was history. And ironically, this was this conversation happened in the fall of 1998. Um, and I, yeah, and I, I was what, probably 23 years old and, uh, just starting out. And I ended up getting an internship with career services. Crystal and I are still friends today. Um, and I fell in love with both career counseling as well as working with college students and a whole career in higher education sort of blossomed from there as well as the career counseling, which has been something I've been doing literally since 1998. Yeah. I, I remember uh, as an undergrad, I was doing um, my senior year. I had an independent uh, undergraduate research um, that I was running for a professor and her interests were in child abuse and trauma. 
So I yeah. did, um, I did um, original primary research on child abuse and trauma and acceptance of aggression in adulthood. And what I learned by doing that is that I didn't think I had the stomach to, you know, work with clinical populations like that, which it was something yeah. I was, I was glad I learned um, before I started, because uh, my plan was to start a doctoral program, but I'm glad I kind of learned that beforehand um, because it, it would have been, it would have been hard. It would have been too hard for me to deal with clinical populations like that. Yeah. So, um, I wound up getting a job in advertising. I saw my first focus group and I said, Hey, that looks like group therapy. Um, that psychology right there. Yeah, yeah. And I'm using these <laughs> psychology skills and no one's crying. Although I have run focus groups where people cry, <laughs> but that's another wow. story. Um, yeah. and you know, then, then it, my career kind of went in a completely different direction, but I was always glad I had that foundation of, um, you know, learning the ins and outs of um, psychology and different theories yeah. and, and all that stuff. So, um, all right. So now, so, so let's talk about this book that you wrote um, or how you yeah. got into, how you got into writing. So the name of the book, actually, why don't you tell us all what the name of the book is? Well, uh, here's my book. <laughs> there it is. Um, and yeah, so the name of the book is Rescript the Story You're Telling Yourself. Um, the eight practices to quiet your inner antagonist, amplify your inner advocate, and author a limitless life. So, yes, tell us what that it's means. All, it's all about self-talk. That's the simplest, you know, synopsis of it. And you know, for me, it was a really long time in the making, but I uh, came from. It originated from my own issues with confidence and self-esteem and anxiety and panic attacks and how the voice in my head was really the biggest problem for me um, in all of those areas and the reason that I was struggling so much. Of course, you don't really know that at the time. Um, and so it blossomed from there. I, I think I became really um, just fascinated with the idea of how much control we have over how we feel and how we behave and how much we, by changing the conversation we have with ourselves and the story we tell ourselves can completely change the story that we live. Um, and so I began without really having a name for it or really having um, a framework of what it was I was doing, I began doing this with, um, with my college students. I began, I, I also uh, worked for a couple of years with a nonprofit, a um, couple uh, days a week in the evenings. So I was, you know, doing this, this work, just really working on this idea of self-talk a lot with, with clients, um, with students. And, it just kept evolving and evolving. And I started writing a book because <laughs> it's not this book. It's a book that never was. <laughs> um, but I started writing a book in 2003. I got 17 pages in. I stopped. I stopped for 12 years. <laughs> I started again in 2015, was going strong, stopped. And this book was really born in 2016. So it, it was, it had a lot of very similar, extremely similar material to the things I'd been writing before. But in 2016, um, after uh, a number of rejections, I finally got, uh, accepted for a TED talk mm -hmm. and it was, the theme was stories. And I thought, 
well, could that be more perfect? And, you know, the topic for what I talk about came to me in full title instantaneously. And then after I did that TED talk, I was like, this is the book. This yeah. is the book. It's it's interesting. I mean, you mentioned kind of um, that that kind of voice inside your head, and 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 for some reason, when you were when you were talking about that, I went back to this episode of Mad Men, um, which I was I love that show, but but and Don Draper as much of a you know kind of a creepy guy as he really was underneath the underneath the surface, yeah. but he did say some brilliant things, and and one of yeah. them that I always remembered was, you know, if you don't like what's being said, change the conversation. Um, and, That's right. and to me, it's like, you know, if, if I don't like kind of what, what my head's telling me or the limits that I'm placing on myself, I've got to change that conversation. Um, yeah. and, and it, it really hit home for me once when I was, I was out running and, um, you know, I knew, I knew I had gotten to a point where like, I knew physically I could handle a longer endurance run, but where I was having the problem was, because it was yeah. kind of mentally. So when that voice inside your head says you have to stop or, um, you know, you, you have to learn how to ignore that or how to deal with that. And that's just in, in like one small area of my life. But but yeah. it's 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 true in career. It's true in relationships. It's true in, in a lot of different places, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, it really, I mean, I, I find that I'm always talking about this with, you know, the people I work with, but it is, it's, it doesn't matter where it is, how much we can tell ourselves. I did, a, I was doing a, a presentation uh, yesterday and um, with um, EOF counselors um, for, I used to work with the EOF program at Rutgers years ago, and this was like a training. And so they work with college students, uh, first generation, low income students. So, but I was getting to talk about rescripting with, um, the EOF counselors. And we were basically talking about how this applies to how, how we counsel, how we help people. Um, and it, you know, applies to students in so many different capacities of their lives and how many students are struggling with anxiety and depression. But a lot of it is so much of this running of a, I can't, I can't, I can't handle it. I can't handle this test. I can't handle, I got so much going on and why I can't do it and why I'm not smart enough and why I don't belong here and why, you know, I'm never going to be able to do whatever and, and how much that is often, the biggest problem is not, it's not usually ability. It's not, you know, usually that you can't find the time or that you can't reorganize your life or that you, you know, you can't modify your behaviors. It's that because this keeps saying the same thing and it's not a good thing. We then feel a certain way and hence behave a certain way. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think about, um, I mean, I think about a lot of things, but you know, I think about like things that I've, I've, um, always wanted to do, but never did because I was letting things get in the way, you know? Yeah. So I, you know, we're the, we're the parents of triplets. Um, so uh, I know you mentioned you have a 10 year old. Um, we have three 17 year olds in the house right now. Yeah. And I mean, that, that certainly placed a lot of limits on, on kind of what we can do in our free time and even kind of limits in where my career could go because, um, you know, I, I have to, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy raising three kids. I mean, that's just, I can't you know. even imagine. <laughs> So, um, but you know, I used to use them. I think I used to use them as, as a crutch too much. Like, oh, I can't do this because I have to be home, or yeah. you know, I can't do this because I have to worry about this. Now, you know, they're at a point where they're a little bit more self sufficient. They're all driving, so like a lot of a lot of my day to day or weekend stuff was just kind of carting them around places. And now that yeah. they're kind of a little bit more 
independent, I, I've I've made the time and found the time to pursue other things, like outside of my career. You know, I, there's things right. I have to do for money, and there's things I want to do for me for my own personal development. And I mean, stand up yeah. comedy happens to be one of them. But um, but I always had this thing in my head where I can't because, and now I'm trying to change that to I can, and you know, this is why that kind of thing. Yeah, um, that's awesome. So let's 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 go let's go in our in our DeLorean, um, hit eighty eight yeah. miles an hour, and go back in time to I think it was twenty um, two thousand three where you started those seventeen pages but <laughs> stopped. What what happened? Why'd you stop? Oh my god, it's crazy. I I had literally just defended my dissertation at that point, and I wanted to write about and and, and I actually am someone who enjoyed writing the dissertation. Um, I might be one of the only people I've ever heard say that, but. Uh, <laughs> I actually don't know that I've met someone who said that to me yet. Not, not enjoy, right. tolerate maybe. Um, but I enjoyed it because I, I wrote about um, women's identity, college women's identity and how we, you know, they developed that identity. And, um, but after I finished my dissertation, I, I was like, you know, there's other things I want to write about that are relevant to that. And, and it was about self-worth and what makes us feel like we're enough. And ironically, a client of mine, um, I was working at the college counseling centers at the time, had said something to me and uh, she was uh, a music performance major at Rutgers. And in our final session together, we worked together for three years, she sang me a song and she made me a beautiful card that she painted in watercolors. And inside, one of the things it said was, thank you for teaching me that I am enough. And I'd never heard any, but now people say you're enough. I'm enough all the time, but it was literally the first time I'd ever heard it said that way. And it stuck with me to this day. And so the title of that book was, (laughs) um, I am enough, the art of loving yourself, others and life. And that's what that, the book that never was. And so right after the dissertation, I said, you know what? I'm, I'm in writing mode still. Let's start. And I sat down. I think those 17 pages may have happened in the course of one day. It's been a long time, so I could be wrong about that. But I just remember being at the computer for a while and then being really tired and then having times where I was like, oh, I should get back to this. And then I started a full-time job right after graduating. I was blessed to be offered a job, I think it was two, three months before I finished. That was wonderful. And it just got, you know, quote, busy and I let it go. And, And I kept telling myself, oh, you'll get to it. You'll do it. When you have more time, you'll write. And it always stayed there. It was like, it was a nagging that wasn't there every day, but I would say probably every, every few months it would come in my head and be that sort of like, why aren't you doing that Colleen? Like you should, you should do that. But I never touched it. I would look at it. I would open up that document again. I never touched it. Um, for yeah, about, about 12 years. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things where I think, you know, obviously life gets in the way, um, and other priorities come up and, uh, but I do think there's something about kind of the, just timing, not being right. Um, yeah. you know, cause I've started and stopped books before. Um, yeah, this last one that I just finished, you know, it took me a long time. It usually takes me about six months to write a novel. This one Good. took like 12, 13. Um, 
And I realized that it's because my heart wasn't into it, you know, like it wasn't like the original story. There was just something not right. I couldn't put my finger on the pulse of it. And, you know, then I realized that uh, I had to rewrite the entire thing and change the structure. Um, but, you know, sometimes the sometimes there's there there's a reason why we're not motivated to do those things. Um but it sounds like, you know, you know, fast forward, you know, 12 or so years, you kind of pick it up again. And do I understand that it transformed into, into what's currently, what you currently did, your, your current book? or? Yeah. So the when I started writing again in 2015, I had sort of like a revelation. And it was a good idea. It just didn't, uh, didn't uh, unfold the way I had uh, intended. <laughs> but uh in when 2014 was going into 15, I thought, you know what? I had read about people blogging a book, right? Mm -hmm. So you write, you write a blog and then the blog material becomes the book. And I thought, well, that seems really good. It's like, there's accountability. I create an audience. I said, you know what? I'm going to try this. And so that was where it began. I think it was like January 1st or 2nd of 2015. I started this blog. I, I was very clear that my intent was to make this into a book. Um, it was called seeing all the good. And, uh, I didn't have the, uh, the, the subtitle, but yeah. <laughs> seeing all the good. And, um, and it was going really well. I mean, I was writing like crazy. I mean, sometimes in addition to work, um, and I'm, I'm sure you, I know you've written many novels. Um, you know, I, I was writing like 20, 25 hours a week on top of, uh, you know, work and life and everything else. But, but I was enjoying it. And then I burnt out. I burnt myself out because I, again, the things you learn in the process of writing, especially when you don't, when you've never really attacked it before or approached it before. And so the way I was approaching it wasn't effective for me. And, and honestly, just to attempt to do as much as I was attempting to do the, the guidelines I was placing on myself about how this had to be. I started creating re ridiculous rules for myself about word counts and when, and when this gets to, I mean, I'm sure you've done a lot of these things to yourself. We learn the right, you know, I shouldn't say the right way and the wrong way, but the things that are effective for you and the things that aren't and by making lots of mistakes and that, it, I'm grateful for it, but it was definitely not an effective way. I burnt out within three months. By March, I was exhausted, how and did, I just stopped. How did you um, change your approach, and and what encouraged you? I mean, obviously, being burnt out might encourage you to change, but <laughs> yeah. you know, was there was there like um, somebody you turned to, an advisor? Um, like, how did you how did you kind of identify the problem, and then? to put together a plan to, to change it? Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I think for me, um, writing needed to be, I needed it to be more solitary in the sense that I thought that for me, because for some, I think talking about it with others, being accountable to people, letting them know like people in your life or people online that you're working on a book, could be really effective. And I thought it would be for me, but it, it seemed to have the opposite impact for me in terms of, I felt pressure all of a sudden I, I felt, and, and it was really internal pressure. I was perceiving that it was coming externally. Cause then if you tell people you're writing a book, then every time they see you at an event, they go, how's that book coming? Right. And I would go, oh, it's not, <laughs> it's not coming. <laughs> 
Um, so I, I didn't really reach out to people to talk about it because I turned inward. I kind of very much said, I'm not going to talk about this to people anymore. Um, and, and so I be, it, it, and, and in some ways that's good. And in some ways it's not, it means that you can just stop writing and people stop bothering you. I mean, nobody stops asking you, you know, did you ever, you know, finish that book? But um, but it got fewer and far between, but I really turned inward and I kind of kept to myself about it. And every once in a while I would sit down and attempt to write something. And honestly, like it was a feeling of overwhelm. There was always a very intense feeling of overwhelm that would come. Um, and I, I would, I kept looking at the big picture. I kept looking at this, that, you know, the end product and not seeing the process. And that was a big um, deterrent was looking at looking at how big it was instead of looking at at it in parts yeah when did you did you notice a difference in terms of or did you struggle with at all um kind of academic writing where i always certainly in my in my experience like more is more like bigger words you know more complex thinking um versus when, when you're getting to the like the the publishing and working with an editor where you really learn that kind of less is more say things more simply. And, um, did you struggle with that at all from, you know, from your totally. dissertation days to the, to this? Totally. Oh my God. That's like profound. <laughs> an issue. Oh, because my way of talking is very not, like researchy. Right. <laughs> so I, I say words like researchy. Um, so, but, but yeah, like I, everything to me was one of the biggest problems I had and, and I, and I'll tell you who, who fixed it for me. Um, it was a, it was a very simple statement, um, that happened in 2017, but, um, but this idea of you have no thoughts of your own were taught in school in college and graduate school that there's no original thoughts. It's you, everything you're writing about belongs to someone. So cite it, cite the, who said it? It's not you. You have no opinions. You know, I mean, you're not allowed to insert them in a paper. So it's everything you write is summarizing something that someone else said. And I was writing like that. I was doing a combination of this research, you know, cite this person and cite that person and write it like a research paper uh, and, and my, my sort of down to earth talk. And it, and it wasn't that it was awful. It just wasn't working. And so that was a major impediment. But what happened was I, I started in 2016 after the, the Ted talk to write again. And that was when I developed the idea of rescripting. And then once, you know, I kind of like, I wasn't like heavy with the writing, but I kept it up intermittently throughout 16, intermittently in the early part of 17. And then I took an online course um, with Bill O'Hanlon, who's a really big um, writer and researcher um, in psychology, a lot of positive psychology. He, he helped to create solution-focused therapy. And, and so he did this book writing course. He's written like, I think like 40 books. And he looked at my writing and my ideas and he said to me, you, these, I, these ideas, he's like, don't you have your own strategies and your own tools that you use with clients? Do you need to 
be using all these things that you've pulled from research. And he says, write what you know, write what you do. What are your thoughts? And I was like, my thoughts? I'm not allowed to have thoughts. (laughs) I'm not allowed to create things. And all of a sudden I realized when I started writing, really getting into the writing, I was shocked at how much I had created. I was using all this stuff with my clients that came out of here. And I didn't even acknowledge it until I wrote it. I mean, you had to re-script it, right? You had to re-script the entire way of thinking. I mean, not to, (laughs) you know, not to make a joke of it, but that's, that's the truth. I mean, you had to almost take your own advice in that regard. All the time. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, it's amazing when we take our own advice. (laughs) Right. It's really helpful. (laughs) I know. Um, so, uh, so, so, so the book gets published and then, then did you find that the hard part starts after the book gets published? Oh my God. It's like now the first, the first thing I noticed was one, the first feeling is an immense sense of relief. People say, Oh, you must be so happy. So proud. So excited. And I said, I'm just relieved. I'm relieved that the book that's been weighing on my shoulders since 2003 is not on my shoulders and in my head anymore. I'm just so relieved it's not there anymore. But then after that, you realize that, oh, well, there's this whole other thing where now you've got to figure out how to tell people that like ain't your family and friends that you wrote a book. What? Oh my God, the people that are buying my book are all my family, my friends, my clients, but like, what about everybody else? (laughs) The people who are going to like earn you some, earn you some cash. Did you, I mean, I assume you went the uh, traditional publishing route. You found a agent and publisher and all that. Hybrid. Okay. So, um, so basically I, I was really trying to figure out what I, what I wanted to do. And I knew that you know, with the traditional route, I think the thing that always kind of like intimidated me um, was that there was the unknown time factor. You know, you're sending this out, you're pitching this to agents, and you don't really know what's going to happen. The ambiguity of it in terms of especially the timeline was something that was, I guess for me, I was like, you know, I just want this thing out already. Like, I just need it to be done. I, 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 I can't. So... So I started investigating. I thought about self-publishing, but then I was like, I don't love the idea of like the full self-publishing. Um, I know not having, you know, any sort of community behind you makes it even that much harder to get yourself out there. And, you know, weird thing, of course, well, not so weird because social media knows what you're looking for and the internet is watching us. So it knows what you're looking up. It knows the research that you're doing. Um, you, and Hey, you do focus groups, you know, so you know that. Um, and, but, but I'm not bothered by that because that means sometimes it sends you exactly what you're looking for. Right. Um, and that's what happened was that an, I think it, it was Facebook. Um, an ad came up on Facebook and I, I had been looking up hybrid publishing. I've been looking up self-publishing, traditional. And it was for um, Author Academy Elite. And I ended up looking at um, like going on their website, watching the video, Carrie Oberbrunner oversees um, uh, Author Academy Elite. He's the president. 
And I really felt like a, just a great vibe from him. Um, I liked his background. He had been a pastor and then he, he was an author. He created this business. It had grown. He was all about helping authors. And he basically created this community of authors that is, and it's basically, it's a publisher. It's a course that teaches you from the very beginning, you got an idea. What do you do now? You know, the writing process, you have this entire community of other people who are writing right along with you. You're interacting with them online. It was, it's an extremely active community, like really, really active community and supportive community. You're watching other people go through every stage of the process. They walk you through everything in terms of your documents. They provide you with the interior design, how to get the cover design. Just everything is laid out for you. So all the things you don't know that terrify you, they give it to you. And then they also provide you with the ideas for now what with, you know, going into the bookstores and how do you get in there and, and how do you do talks and how do you market yourself and how do you get yourself in the media? You know? And so it was, it's been, cause I'm, you know, still in it. It's been the most amazing thing to have that community be behind me. And so, uh, so the creepy factor of online, knowing what you're looking up did me wonders. <laughs> Well, you know, I will pass it on to my Facebook clients, actually. That'll be a good testimonial for them. But Yeah, like, I love them. I, I've i met so many amazing people. And the inspiration of watching other authors go through every stage of the process makes you feel like you can do this. It's like I, I, you feel, I know I can do this. They're scared. They're nervous. You watch them be nervous and vulnerable. And then they got a book out there. And then it's climbing up Amazon. And you're like, I could do this. They're doing it. I could do this. Well, I mean, you 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 certainly had some success climbing up Amazon. Um, now, now, once you've had that success, and now that your name is is out there, and you know you've been doing talks, and you're building a, a pretty solid platform for yourself, have you found that you know publishing companies or agents are finding you or trying to you know uh, do business with you or get you to you know publish through them, or how, how's that um, changed at all? Well. <laughs> It's funny that you say that. Um, I won't mention the name, but someone contacted me today and I was perplexed. I was like, what is this? And I looked, I looked them up and there it seemed to be a publisher. And, and, and the message was, we're interested in you. And I was like, hey, <laughs> so I have to investigate that further. But, uh, but, I, but I will say like, I'm super happy where I am, like yeah. in terms of the publishing, you know, um, I'm like super happy. But when it comes to you know, things related to like media. I, I mean, I've, you know, I've had some people reach out um, about, you know, whether it's podcasts or whether it's um, radio interviews or um, some TV things. So it's like an online TV. Um, I don't know if streaming is, that's probably not the right word. I'm not the best with the right words for technology things. Um, but But it's been really cool because sometimes people, you know, have said to me, like, oh, wow, you're doing all this stuff. And like, what are you doing? And I'm thinking, I don't know, because it's, things are just coming to me right now. Not, not all of it. I won't pretend I've been to the Barnes and Nobles. I do actively seek that stuff out. I've actively sought out, you know, getting book reviews, entering book contests. I mean, like I look this stuff up. I do actively seek these things out. But in terms of some of like media contact, I've been very, very fortunate 
that a lot of things have come my way, but I'm not an idiot. And I know that doesn't last forever. And so right now it's about working on my website and being more aware of, you know, speaker one sheet and write all these things that we have to do to try to get the message out there. Something, something super cool recently was there's the store in, in the mall local to me. They're, they're called all things local. And, um, and I love them because it's all products by people who, you know, who live in the, the area, whether it's jewelry or lotions or candles or art or whatever. But I noticed they had some books in there. And I said, you know what? As soon as I finish this book and it's out, I'm going in there to see what do I got to do to get in your store? I'm in there now. That's and great. they want, soon they want me to do like a motivational speaking event over there. And that's in a mall. That's a good thing. Um, so it's, yeah, I think it's just realizing you take what comes to you and you keep pushing and looking and doing your research. And, you know, I'm definitely, you know, thinking about what is it? Uh, what do they call them? Um, the PR agent or the press people or publicist or thank you. That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> thinking about that. I'm on the fence right now because that's expensive. <laughs> you got to be very careful with them because they promise a lot. And, and from personal experience, um, they don't always deliver and, uh, there's, um, you know, yeah. So just got to be very careful with, uh, if, if it's something seems too good to be true and that if is. it's costing you a lot of money, um, <laughs> really rethink it because there's a lot of it you can do. Um, yeah, you do, you have to do by yourself. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so is there, is there a second book in the works or in, in, in your, in your mind, are you thinking about even updating the, uh, you know, the, the first one? Well, this one just came out. So literally in, in March. Yeah. Um, so I'm in the, in the new phases, but, um, the, uh, you know, there's others, there's, there's, uh, there's three in my head. Um, so one is good is definitely a, a very women's empowerment book. Um, I'm trying to tell myself that we're going to work on that in 2020 because I want to dedicate myself to this one right now. <laughs> I'm stopping myself from every urge I have to start working on it mm-hmm. because I don't think it's the right time. Um, this, this book deserves my attention. And so I'm going to give it to it. Um, I have a whole idea of writing an entire book of like little mini manifestos on issues that people deal with um, every day, like sort of motivational little, you know, one page manifestos, you know, with anywhere between 10 to 20 different statements that would sort of focus on a particular area. Um, but the, the next thing hopefully is a kid's book. So my son and I, um, this summer have said, we're going to start working on a kid's book about gratitude. So we have a title and, you know, working it out, <laughs> that, <laughs> but we're going to write it together. So that's awesome. Well, you can tell writing is, is a passion because, you know, even, even though that this book just came out in March and it's a, certainly a, a long process, you're already <laughs> thinking of kind of what's coming up next. You already have a few solid ideas and that's, um, yeah, that's fantastic. Um, actually there's a, there's a woman I know named Shelly Zalas who was on the show. Um, yeah. she runs, um, I used to work for her years ago, but she runs now this organization called the female quotient, Ooh. which does a lot of work around female empowerment. And she knows, she knows just about everybody in Hollywood. Um, wow. 
and uh, is is the pure definition of a mover and a shaker. Um, and uh, does a lot of work in the corporate sector now with equality, female equality, and all that. Awesome. Um, so she'd be a great person, I think, that I'll I'd be happy to connect you to. That would be so fabulous, she female is. quotient. I'm I'm probably going to look her up immediately after. She, she will have today. you under. She will have you under her spell. Believe me, she oh is my God. that kind of person. Um, so let's uh, let's uh, just wrapping things up here. Um, you know, let's let's think about that. Um, Young Colleen, who is, you know, with Metalhead and listening to Motley Crue and <laughs> shouting at the devil and not realizing that she's bathing in misogynistic lyrics. But right. what if you could if you could write that um, younger person a letter, uh, mail it today back to that younger person, what would you tell that person? What would you tell your younger self? You know, my younger self was um, probably by a lot of other people's you know, I think sometimes what people think on the outside of you isn't necessarily what's going on for you, you know? And, and so a lot of people have said to me, I never knew you were going through panic attacks and I never knew you, you had such issues with insecurity. You never seemed like that, you know? Um, and I guess because I've always been very friendly and outgoing, there's a perception that you're, you're very secure, but, you know, internally, because at that time of my life, I was so afraid to use my voice. And I think, um, you know, giving away part of my title of the, the women's book there. But uh, that's that's the biggest thing. I would tell myself, speak right. Be, don't, don't be so afraid of what you have to say and what you feel and sharing it with the people in your life with, you know, with what you pursue um, don't, don't feel so scared to be vulnerable, to make mistakes, to be a flawed human being. Um, be, be authentic, be who you are, be proud of, of the mess and the good stuff. Um, because that was such a difficult thing for me. Um, I think I was, you know, again, extremely self-critical, um, really beat up on myself over anything and everything. And I didn't speak. There's so many things, so many things I went through in my life that were such um, really about the fact that I did not use my voice and I did not speak up for myself. And I was always very concerned about what people would think about me. And um, I'm grateful for going through it because it's helped me to help my students. It's helped me to help my clients who are going through similar things. Um, And because I get to write about it and talk about it now. But it took a long time to get to that place. And that's what I would tell myself. Use your voice. That's it's fascinating. I was, I just reminded me, I was, um, I went on like three dates with this one girl in high school. Her name is Giovanna and she wound up becoming, um, a uh, very popular, very popular in high school where I was not, uh, what do you call Mr. Popular? Um, and, and she decided not decided, but she, you know, she went into a different crowd and did a lot of, um, Let's let's just say she had a lot of life experiences and and tried some things that I never did. Yeah. Um, but we reconnected. I don't know, like seven or eight years ago. Just just went out and had lunch, um, and she confided to me. She said, "You know, Mike, back back in high school, I was like super insecure, and you know, I was you know I had anxiety, and yeah. you know, all of like that. My whole persona was just like false." Yeah. Um, but it's just amazing how that, you know, that, that like rooted insecurity manifests itself differently in yeah. people and, and how you only realize it later, 
later on in life. It's um, to me and just being a father now of three 17 year olds, it's like I yeah. try and, and look for those things, you know, I try and look in and, and, you know, just trying to always encourage them to like, tell us how they feel as, as uncomfortable as it can sound, you know? And, and, yeah. you know, it's, uh, I mean, our, our, my parenting style, my wife's parenting style is a lot different than what our parents uh, was, which is basically, uh, we don't talk about anything and, uh, and go figure it out for yourselves. Like, right. you know, we, we might to a fault try and, you know, and bring issues up and have uncomfortable conversations, but, um, just to let them know that it's like, you know, not, not weird to have certain feelings, you know? And yeah, but anyway. that's, that's amazing. And especially again, all throughout, obviously growing up, but to be a teenager, you know, this is the time, obviously it's going to, it gets progressively more difficult and having three 17 year olds. That's, that's awesome that you're giving them the, the space to have a voice and to feel and to not be ashamed of whatever it is that they're thinking or feeling. Right. And, but the funny thing is they just, they always get like, so nervous about it. You know, when we say like, is there, <laughs> there going to be drinking at this party? Should we talk about this? Or, you know, what are you and the boys doing that kind of stuff? It's, <laughs> and they're like, Oh, stop. We don't want to hear it. You know, fingers go in the ear and blah, 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 blah. And you know, why are you so weird? But it's like, my, our parents never talked to us about this stuff. I mean, right. yeah, we, they never had any of those conversations with us. I don't know what your household was, but, you know, my parents were Irish <laughs> and Italian. So that meant we were Catholic and, and we didn't talk about anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate that, like, my parents did have those conversations with me. And I, I really feel like there's things that I didn't do that are because they were real about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Well, that's a good one to a good one to end it on. So thank you uh, so much for taking the time to chat with me and I'm sorry it took so long to get this set up. I know uh, we played ping pong with this one a little bit. So it's all good. It happens when it's supposed to happen. So this is when we were supposed to talk. (laughs) Just like your book, just like your book, which let's let's remind everybody the name of the book and where they can buy it. It is called Rescript the Story You're Telling Yourself, and it is on Amazon. On Amazon. That's, it's on some other places, too, but Amazon helps me the most. So it's on Amazon. <laughs> there you go. And so, uh, and then where, if people wanted to learn more about Dr. Colleen Georges, where could they go yeah. to learn more about you? Uh, www.colleen, C-O-L-L-E-E-N, Georges, G-E-O-R-G-E-S.com. Very good. Well, Colleen, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much, Michael. I, I just this was really, really fun to talk, and it was super fun to, to not just talk about career in the book, but you know, talk about Hard Thirty and uh, and Headbangers Ball and Adam Curry, you know. So you know what? <laughs> Molly Curry. It, it's still the greatest music ever. I mean, I will, I will say that to the day I die. Um, yeah, I know. I feel that way too. Well, there you have it. I hope you uh, enjoyed my interview with Dr. Colleen Georges. And please be sure to visit ColleenGeorges.com for more information about her. And of course, if you want to learn more about me or my books, please go over to MichaelCarlinAuthor.com. That's Carlin with an O and not an I. And lastly, if you liked what you heard here, please, please, please tell a friend about this podcast because that's how we grow. So this is Mike Carlin for all those hardworking people over here at Uncorking a Story saying, until next time.